All right. Uh, this, uh, TMI was mostly about samatha. Will you be writing a book about insight too? What resources and methods which go beyond just hoping for spontaneous insight experiences during samatha do you recommend, besides a personal teacher, for meditators looking to systematically develop their insight? Well, this book was really about samatha and uh, vipassana both. It wasn't, a, I didn't go into the details about the process of insight uh, the way I did the, it was mostly, this book is mostly about uh, the practice. Um, but uh, I included a, a large uh, level of detail or a high level of detail about uh, how the practice works in achieving samatha. But uh, I, I actually do intend to put something out fairly soon that discusses the details of insight and awakening because there seems to be just so much misunderstanding and uh, confusion about that. Um, but uh, what, <clears throat> what and so-called insight practice does is it's just a practice that makes it likely for you to uh, recognize something about the uh, nature of reality that you'd actually been experiencing in some way or another all of your life, but have a breakthrough recognition that, ah, this is the way, this is the way things really are. And so an insight practice is any, any practice that is designed to potentially bring you to the place of, of having that kind of aha experience. And uh, most of the practices, well, all of the practices from uh, stage seven on are actually insight practices. They're just not, uh, I, I just don't spell out the process of insight. I don't put the emphasis on that. Um, so part of the question, your question was, during Samatha, do you recommend, uh, or, wait a minute, what resources and methods which go beyond just hoping for spontaneous insight experiences? Uh, it's those practices. That's what I recommend that you do. You get, to, you get to the adept stages, you do those practices, and insight is, is uh, almost certain to occur. And because that's what those, that's, those practices are recommended in this book uh, in the framework of developing samatha. But they all have the potential to trigger insight. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, anything, any well-designed uh, practice system is going to include practices that uh, are intended to trigger insight. A lot of you may be familiar with Mahasi method, and it is aimed just simply at producing an experience which triggers insight into impermanence. 
whereas the practices in TMI, there are a variety of them that can trigger uh, uh, insights into uh, emptiness, interconnectedness, and, and uh, impermanence. I hope that answers that question, but yes, I, I, I feel like the time has come that it's necessary to write a book about insight because, uh, because of the level of confusion. So, <clears throat> Edel or Edel, is, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Uh, is, is, is it Edel Quinn or Edel Quinn? Edel. Edel. Okay, I got uh, both my, my attempts were wrong. Okay. okay. Edel, wonderful. All right. Uh, You'd like me to explain the purification process from the perspective of a stage four practitioner. You still feel unsure about how to know whether you're having a purification or not. Uh, until recently, I have had, I've not experienced anything that seems to qualify as a purification, but recently during a sit, I experienced extreme unusual tension that came from nowhere and had no cause or reason that I could identify. It built up to an almost unbearable level and then ended, but I did not experience any sensation of relief or release. Uh, well, I would imagine that, the, uh, that when the tension ended, that that was a kind of <laughs> sensation of, of release and, and relief, but I, I think I know what you mean. Um, how can you better understand uh, whether such experiences that come from nowhere are true purifications uh, and how to reap the full benefit? Well, <clears throat> movements and tension in the body can certainly uh, indicate a purification is taking place. Um, the purifications usually have a strong emotional component and as I think is pretty widely recognized now that uh, our emotions are strongly expressed through our body. So with tension coming on suddenly like that, it is very likely that uh, it is a, a strong emotion, but it's one that you obviously didn't become conscious of. Um, it's really difficult to tell about some of these things, whether they are a purification or a potential purification and whether or not purification has actually taken place. Now you experienced a release of the tension, but you didn't experience in your description any, uh, any emotional component. It didn't bring back any memories or things like that. So, uh, there's a possibility that the tension was just part of your mind resisting the meditation process. I'd say based on the whole, the entirety of your description, I would say that's possible, but not, not the number one possibility. Uh, the other possibility, it was the beginning of a purification uh, and, and that manifested 
you were what you were conscious it manifested in the body and so that's the only thing you became conscious of now there's two possibilities one is that whatever it is became repressed again in which way in, in which case it's going to come up some other time and the other possibility is that somehow it became resolved at an unconscious level um, so and, and that, the actual resolution that takes place during purifications is always unconscious but you're conscious of certain aspects of it but the, but the real work is being done at the unconscious level where there's the integration of some submind that has has been uh, that has a problem <laughs> of one sort or another and needs to be integrated um, it's not at all usually the emotional component does rise into consciousness okay and um, but it doesn't necessarily have to <clears throat> the most important thing is the mindfulness if during this period of tension uh, you were maintaining uh, clear awareness of it or even better had you focused your attention on it then this might have given an opportunity for that integration at the unconscious level to take place it doesn't in a case like this it doesn't really matter uh, you do the same thing anyway when it becomes too strong a distraction that it, it keeps interrupting your ability to remain focused on the breath or it, you know it, it becomes a gross distraction that you just can't then what you want to do is to take it as your meditation object and explore it while remaining completely mindful of where you are now so for example you would focus on that tension in your body you would explore it and the discomfort that it produces uh, you would just be open to whatever it has to tell you and uh, if it's just uh, if it's a manifestation of pain that is uh, an attempt by some part of your mind to resist the meditation process then it will tend to resolve itself just when you focus your attention on it um, and begin to explore it in a, in a very objective way because at the same time you're mindful that okay I'm experiencing this tension and this pain but it's not causing me any harm it's uncomfortable you just try to come to a place of equanimity and if it was a purification it could happen without you realizing it but you in, in general you are, are wondering how to tell when something is a purification the ones you know for sure are uh, are the ones that have a strong emotional component in which case you deal with that by shifting your attention to it but first on the way the emotion manifests in the body so that's why I said that it really doesn't matter whether it's purification or uh, tension and pain due to some other cause when it becomes strong enough as a distraction you're going to do the same thing you're going to focus your attention on it while maintaining a very high level of mindfulness the highest level of mindfulness that you're capable of not forgetting where you are and so forth and then when you reach a state of equanimity, uh, uh, equanimity with uh, 
with the physical aspect of it, then you shift to the mental aspect of it. And uh, when it resolves, then, then, you know, that the purification has uh, completed or, or is completed as, mu as much as it's going to at that time. But that is, that is the easiest way to recognize that something is uh, a purification is that it has some kind of an emotional component. It may be accompanied by pain, tension, all kinds of things in the body. And that is what you take first uh, as your object of investigation. And then when it resolves itself, uh, then, uh, then you know that that purification has reached uh, at least a certain degree of completion for that time. Does that, does that help answer your question? So in the particular instance you described, we can't say for sure yes or no. But in most cases, there would be some emotion. Is there a way to um, encourage the mind to have purification since they're so important? I know they, you can't make them happen, but is there anything you can do to talk to the sub-minds yeah. to bring up things to purify? Yes, you just maintain an openness, a sort of an in, an. an intentional invitation that if there's anything there that needs to be purified that let it come up <coughs> and then if there's a particular distraction that comes up repeatedly then your your attitude towards that distraction is not just to refocus your uh, attention on the meditation object so that it doesn't cause uh, forgetting or something like that uh, but also to, to just have in mind that if this is something that is the precursor to uh, a purification that, yes, you welcome it, you know, please come forward. Tell me what it is that you have to tell me. Okay. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Next question is John Bash. Uh, Hello. John's here? I'm here. Great, great. Okay. <clears throat> you asked uh, about attention deficit disorder, and this predisposition seems to affect my ability to maintain mindfulness throughout daily life, to allow enough time to practice, and my rate of progress and ability to maintain stable attention. Well, the first thing is that uh, one of the main reasons that you are stabilizing attention in the first place is so that you can develop uh, powerful peripheral awareness that's ultimately introspective, uh, ultimately metacognitively introspective, because, because this is the kind of perception that uh, leads to insight. So the stabilizing of attention is at, at least, it's also training attention so that you can use it much more powerfully and effectively later on. Now, if you have ADD, then you probably aren't going to be nearly as uh, successful at stabilizing your attention as uh, 
most people would be and as we describe in the book. But that's all right. What you do is you, you shift the emphasis to the cultivation of strong mindfulness, of strong awareness, particularly of what's going you, you, like most people are suffering awareness deficit disorder. And, uh, uh, and that's what we're trying to overcome. And in meditation, you will overcome that. And as you overcome that, your attention deficit disorder will probably improve as well. But it is the awareness deficit that is most important in terms of bringing about insight and, and awakening. So what you want to do is, is to keep that in mind and uh, let, that, let that background awareness be there. At first, it's extrospective, and it's actually what you'll notice is that the different things arising and passing away in extrospective awareness and introspective awareness thoughts, they are what are, are drawing you, uh, your attention away. So it's just allowing yourself to notice that, not focusing your attention on it. Just notice that your attention is moving, but that you know your attention is moving. Develop the ability that you know that your attention is moving and what it's moving in response to. Now, you mentioned uh, your ability to maintain main mindfulness through throughout daily life. Well, this is something that's... It's, it's, uh, uh, it is a challenge to learn to do that, but the process is really very much the same as what it is uh, in meditation on the cushion. So you'll be doing the same thing. Uh, you're developing awareness, that awareness in the background that knows what's going on. Now, everybody has a tendency to forget to be mindfulness when they mindful when they begin. You get up in the morning and they say, I'm going to be mindful uh, as I can all day. And then they forget that. But um, you, you just treat it the same way. If you, when you realize that you haven't been mindful, mindful, then begin being mindful. Begin exercising that faculty of introspective and extrospective awareness, regardless of what your attention happens to be doing. Does that make sense? That's something that you think you can do? Yeah, definitely. Now, if you go to the appendix on the mindful review, uh, that's something uh, that, uh, of course, staying on track doing the review is, is going to present a bit of a challenge in terms of attention. But nevertheless, um, you should be able to do that mindful review practice. And that will help quite a bit in... Uh, allowing you to sustain mindfulness during the day. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And uh, let me know how it turns out for you, for you okay? Okay, will do. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great. Um, David Johnson. <clears throat> I have a question on the extent to which your lifestyle off the cushion affects your progress in meditation. Is it possible that being in certain life situations can stop your meditation progress? 
For example, if a person is in a long-distance, long-term relationship that is hard on him or her. Secondly, and this might sound like a strange question, as a heterosexual male, do you think that his lifestyle choices regarding his sexual behavior affect his meditation progress? For example, if you bring a male that has an abundance of women, would he progress faster than the same male if he does not pursue intimacy? Since sex affects social status, and social status affects the brain as well as confidence and motivation. <clears throat> well, there's no question at all that, that um, uh, your lifestyle off the cushion is going to affect your progress in meditation. Um, when it gets down to the specifics, it's more how your mind reacts to your lifestyle and to life situations. So if you're in a long distance, long-term relationship, um, that can be challenging in, uh, in a number of ways. Uh, perhaps emotionally, just because of the separation, perhaps because of problems and misunderstandings that are developing because of the difficulty to uh, uh, communicating at a distance rather than being in the presence of somebody. Uh, there are a lot of different forms it could take, which can produce, which can agitate the mind and bring things, uh, and just basically increase the number of distractions that arise. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's negative. It's negative if you are uh, attached to the idea of making progress and you recognize that these situations are creating more distractions. If instead you regard the situation that's producing more distraction, and this can apply to any life situation, if you just recognize that the fact that you're in a situation that uh, is creating preoccupation that uh, generates a lot of distraction, it gives you the opportunity to work in a more challenging uh, situation. And uh, it's like uh, lifting a heavier weight. It can only make, uh, it, it can only make your ability to stabilize attention uh, and maintain uh, strong awareness better, stronger, because of the, uh, because you're working against the agitation. And of course, the meditation is going, going to help you to become more, comp, uh, more comfortable with whatever it is that's creating the agitation and distraction. So when that begins to happen, then uh, you're going to start um, recognizing not only outside of meditation, but in practice, what I, exactly what I said, that that these situations regarded properly can actually be beneficial. But they, the biggest obstacle is that we get attached to progress. We find that, you know, we were at stage four or five and now we're back at stage uh, two and three with forgetting and mind wandering. But that's fine. That's great. Even people who have completed the entire 10 stages go back to the beginning and they repeat the process 
several times. And every time they do, uh, their, uh, their abilities improve and they discover things that they didn't on the first time through. So um, it can affect your progress, but it largely depends on your attitude and your relationship to the situation and the, the effect that it creates. Um, understanding, understanding the Dharma, uh, things like that can be very helpful as well. Being in a situation of acceptance, uh, understanding that everything that occurs occurs due to causes and conditions, and that what the decisions you make and the way that you react to situations is going to shape who you are tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. That's the real meaning of, of karma. So you can use a difficult situation in your life in order to uh, to understand more deeply uh, what the Dharma is trying to teach you. Uh, uh, right thought, right speech, right action, so forth. So there are, there are many ways in which difficult life situations uh, can be beneficial, and that's, uh, and that's what you need to focus on, because what makes it detrimental is when you start worrying about the negative effect that it's having on your meditation. As long as you keep practicing, uh, as long as you're consistent in your practice and, and you do the best that you can, you're diligent, and don't worry about how any particular set goes, it's going to be good. Um, your other question is a bit complex here, the relationship, um, and I'm not sure I totally understand where this is, is coming from. Um, in the description you've given, this could be, uh, this could be a pattern that is just uh, uh, rooted in uh, hedonism and desire, uh, and uh, uh, in which case it's reinforcing and strengthening uh, the very characteristics that you would like to weaken, especially if it is uh, exploitive. And in the kind of the, the kind of description that you give here, uh, it seems that it it would be. Uh, exploited. On the other hand, um, true intimacy can bring about uh, deep caring. And not only that, the, uh, the events that take place in your mind uh, while having sex, uh, during and after orgasm, if you bring mindfulness to that, that can be uh, very powerful, and uh, you can you can learn to recognize so many things. You can learn to recognize the difference between uh, PT and sukha. You can uh, you can discover aspects of, of selflessness and compassion. Um, there are a lot of things that can can be learned and. I think, uh, uh, well, uh, as I'm sure all of you know, that there are tantric practices that take advantage of, of this. But in the situation that you've 
described here. The, the last part of it here is since sex affects social status and social status affects the brain as well as confidence and motivation. Um, once again, this is, this is feeding into uh, attachment to self and attachment to self-image. Um, confidence is good, but it should be, it should be a, a confidence that's based on uh, higher attributes, more noble attributes than just being able to uh, have a lot of sexual partners. Uh, that, that's going to be counterproductive. And if David is here, just ask, is David here? No. Love to ask you a little bit about where that last part was coming from. But for the rest of you, uh, was this useful and did it make sense to you? And can you see what I mean about the positive and negative aspects of both of these things? So there's not a simple yes or no answer. And anybody that tries to tell you that there's a simple yes or no answer uh, is coming from a rather shallow place of understanding of what's, how the mind works and what's going on. Okay. Uh, Michael Walsh. Are you here, Michael? <clears throat> Would seem not. Okay. What do you believe happens when we die? I'm interested in your thoughts about Buddhism and death as traditional, traditionally Buddhism is about ceasing the cycle of rebirth. What do you make of the Buddha's emphasis on the ceasing the cycle of rebirth? You've spoken about accessing past life memories, which implies memories are stored somewhere? Question mark. No self continues after death, but is it possible that certain habitual mental energies continue and influence the mental development of new life forms. Uh, we could go into a lot of depth uh, and spend a lot of time on this very major question. First of all, the idea of rebirth as reincarnation is one that um, preceded the Buddha and was very widespread. Uh, and, and it's not even unique to uh, India or, or the East. Basically, people have worried about what happens after death uh, every, everywhere in the world in all times. And uh, there are several different versions. There's the Jewish version. There's the Christian version, uh, heaven and hell. Uh, there's the, the idea of reincarnation. Um, all of these are really trying to satisfy the fear of death that comes from believing that you are a separate self and your attachment to it. Now, what, what the Buddha was teaching is that realizing that there is no self now, much less some kind of essence that could be passed on to a future life. Um, that realizing that is liberating. It frees you from the fear of death that will lead you to uh, try to uh, generate some sort of belief that will bring comfort to you. And uh, 
doing that does bring people comfort. Uh, when you see somebody dying who has a strong belief that in God and heaven, um, then uh, it's often very comfortable and, and eases their mind. But this is after having lived a life of uh, not just fear of death, but a fear of anything that threatens the uh, sense of self and, and the ego. And that's what Buddhism liberates you from. The rebirth that the Buddha spoke of is the rebirth of the notion of self, of the illusory self. The self is, is a mental formation, and it's constantly being reborn. Not only is it an illusion, it's not a, it's not a permanent, lasting illusion. It goes in and out of existence all of the time. And uh, what really what he's talking about with the ceasing of the cycle of rebirth is the liberation that comes from uh, the realization of no self, which happens in two ways. With stream entry, uh, it is the, uh, you, you realize that there is not a self, and this makes the ego self very transparent, much easier to use as, as a functional way of navigating the world, but uh, is, you're, you're no longer, when, when somebody does or says something that threatens your ego self, it's no longer a problem. But you still have this deep inherent sense of somehow being something separate from everything else. And that's what goes away when you become an arhat. So uh, uh, an, an arhat can rightly say, this is my last rebirth. That the, the self, the sense of self, the ego, is not going to return. And that's, that's, the, that's what the Buddha taught. Now you ask what I believe happens when we die. Well, I have... Uh, I have done practices and access past lives, uh, uh, past lives, uh, but they're not. What I realized from this, what I learned from this, is they're not my past life. It's not like a string of beads. They are past lives that of of beings, people that my mind is in a state that resonates with that of someone that is, who has lived before. The same thing can happen with somebody that's still alive, okay? If my mind is open and resonates with a particular person, then I will be able to access their memories. And uh, I can learn from that if I choose to. But it's a ter it's a, there's absolutely no reason to assume that 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 person whose memories you're, uh, you're accessing was in any sense you. Okay. Now, this implies memories are stored somewhere. Well, it's, it's implying something that, um, that I think is, is very true. I, I am a non-dualist. And I, you know, I, that means that uh, I think that 
there is no such thing as matter and there is no such thing as mind, but rather that there is the stuff of non, uh, non-duality. And then when looked at from the outside, it appears to be matter and looked at from the inside, it appears to be mind. And just as everything in the material universe is interconnected, so is everything in the, uh, quote, mental universe. Remember, they're both really the same. They're just two ways of, of perceiving things. Everything that's happened in the material world in the past um, continues to leave its mark. Uh, we, we can, uh, a, a geologist can tell you the history of a location. A paleontologist can, can uh, tell you about the life forms that lived at different times in history. Uh, we have knowledge about what's happened going back to uh, the earliest beginnings of, of life on the planet, things like that. Well, I think it's the same thing with uh, a, a person's, when the body decomposes, the person's mental life remains a part of that, uh, it, it remains a part of the, the his history that's accessible of uh of that non-dual substance, just as uh, in the, from the material point of view, uh, the history is there. Uh, theoretically, if, uh, and, and I'd say more than theoretically, theoretically in the strong sense that science uses the word theory, if we had enough information and if we were able to process it, uh, this would take uh, some super super computers, but we could probably uh, re- uh, we could probably decipher the entire history of everything in the universe of, of go way beyond what we already do and this, and in that same way um, think of it this way: the life that you 've lived uh, when the body ends and uh, uh, that that life is there it's a part it's a part of what makes up the universe and yes it can be accessed by someone else more importantly is as you say uh, certain habitual mental energies and patterns whether they are wholesome or unwholesome continue and influence the mental development of new life forms um, without you realizing that, you are tapping into um, the wholeness of uh, uh, the wholeness of what is, and you have access to that which you're in a state of resonance with. You could think of it as all of the anger that's ever been expressed and all of the love that's ever been expressed is out there. It's when you become angry, when your mind resonates with that pool of anger, then that's what you draw upon in your anger. If you've learned to transmute your anger into patience, understanding, and compassion, what you've done is you've, you've reduced the total amount of anger 
uh, in, in the universe, and you've increased the amount of patience and love and compassion in the universe. So we really can uh, transmute these things, and we do throughout our lives. Uh, we are uh, we're either contributing to the more wholesome or the or the more unwholesome aspects of the totality that we're a part of. So we're a discrete manifestation of a wholeness. And what we are is a reflection of that wholeness. What we do reflects upon that wholeness. It's very holistic, you know. And Yes, you, you can access, you do access that. I, I access that. Uh, I have that experience directly. So I hope that that helps. Once again, it's too bad that you're not here, Michael, so I, I can't uh, check in with you on what I've said, but I can certainly check in with the rest of you. Anybody else, I, I tried to make this uh, to not go into too great a depth, but uh, if anybody has any questions or comments on what I've said. Well, okay. It seemed not. This is such a touchy subject because um, because all of the Buddhist religions, they adopted the, uh, the doctrine of reincarnation. What the Buddha did is he would take these pre-existing ideas like karma and reincarnation and things like that, and then he would reformulate them in a different way. He says karma isn't what you do, it's the intentions that arise behind what you do, and he went a step further and said, it doesn't even matter whether you do it. If you have the intentions, it is going to lead to its fruit. And the fruit of the karma, the fruit of your intentions, is what creates who you are. And so karma is not about what happens to you. It's about who it happens to. And what allows you to overcome suffering is becoming the kind of person uh, for whom the kind of person who can deal positively uh, uh, with anything that happens to them. Of course, to become that kind of person means that you are going to, you're going to have the love and respect and admiration and everything uh, of other people, and that most assuredly is going to bring all kinds of benefits and improvements to your life you are not going to be engaging in activities that are, are harmful or, or going to result in, in problems for you in the future because you have wisdom. So it's going, uh, you know, cultivating wholesome intentions is going to have all kinds of consequences in the world. But in the sense of karma, it's how we take ourselves from being an uneducated worldling who, whose, whose nature is being created out of ignorance and becoming a person 
who makes themselves into an awakened being. And um, he did a similar thing with reincarnation. He specifically said on a number of occasions, it's a waste of time to worry about what happens to you after you die. He said it's, it's a waste of time to worry about where you came from, what happened before you were born, and to worry about what happens after you die. Focus on this life. And so he co-opted the idea of reincarnation as uh, a way of describing the rebirth of the self. Now remember, in that time, uh, the whole idea of spiritual practice was to stop the process of reincarnation, right? I mean, some people take comfort in the idea of reincarnation. It overcomes the fear of death. But it was widely recognized and a part of the spiritual doctrines of those, that time that you were just, that reincarnation just condemned you to be born, to be suffering, to die again. Just, it, it was just a continuous process of, of suffering and dying. And by taking that idea and applying it to the self and the constant rebirth of the self as a mental construct that the mind generates, that is the same kind of liberation, right? But it's, it's in a much more realistic, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not over a series of lifetimes. Although, as I said in answering Michael's question, that um, the, those characteristics that you developed, for the good or for the bad, become a part, uh, they constitute a part of the whole, and they ultimately can be shared with others. Simplistically, uh, those aspects of you that are cockroach-like will probably be reincarnated, will be uh, reincarnated in the form of a cockroach. <laughs> but it won't be you. Uh, other parts of you, the nobler parts of you, uh, may be reincarnated in the, uh, a, a, a monk or a person of great generosity or great social um, benefit to others. So it's the rebirth of the false notion of self that causes us so much trouble that we are out to, to put an end to in this life. Uh, that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the Buddha was the first person who ever taught that you could become liberated in this life. All of the other teachings of the time said that liberation was something that, you know, all the practices they did, the liberation came at the time of death in the form of not being reincarnation, re reincarnated. Sometimes it took the form of uh, merging with Brahman, you know, uh, of uh, that, that you were just a dream in the mind of Brahman anyway, and so you returned to your true nature as, as Brahman. But um, anyway, but, yeah, he took the idea of reincarnation and he, he co-opted it as the idea of uh, liberation through the ending of rebirth of the self. Anatta is the deepest, uh, uh, the deepest teaching in terms of liberation. 
And it's also based on the interconnectedness of everything. So the wholeness. I have a question. Sure. Um, when you have these experiences of accessing what you're calling past lives, um, <clears throat> or memories or whatever, how is this, how do you know that this isn't just a manifestation like a dream or a daydream or even a vivid lucid dream that's happening to your waking consciousness or something like that? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, uh, verify that kind of thing other than just recognizing it as this is a thought or this is a memory well um the only way that you can truly verify it is through other experiences and and insights that come with the higher paths but there is something else that uh is unique about it um and probably all of you have had this experience at some time or another. You've had a dream that was not only vivid and extremely detailed, but different than other dreams in that the whole backstory that made that person be who they are was present as a part of it. Is there any of you that haven't had that kind of dream? And then when you wake up in the morning, there's a few minutes there where you, you're not sure who you are. You know, are you the person you thought you were when you went to bed last night? Or are you the person in the dream? Is there anyone here that hasn't had that kind of vivid dream that was just like living events and was different than ordinary dreams in that regard and that even possibly left you somewhat confused when you woke up? Anybody here hasn't had that experience? You haven't had that experience? Well, uh, I would say it's most likely because you didn't recall it, but <laughs> in the sleep state, your mind can, can open up and very occasionally that kind of thing happens. Uh, when you're doing past life practices, um, the less well you know your mind, uh, and the less the less of certain kinds of attachments that you hold, then uh, the less likely that your mind is to try to fabricate an experience. The mind is capable of fabricating an experience so that you can walk away from it. Um, usually you'll you'll have had a past experience of somebody that was noble or famous or something like that. Right, it's fabrication. Um, but if you're at a place where you know your mind well enough, and uh, you're not going to have the kind of attachments that uh, that tend to uh, precipitate this kind of confabulation, mental confabulation, then it's going to be like the dreams that I experienced. It's going. It's going to be so real that it feels like you are the person. The same thing that happens if it's somebody living, it feels like you are, uh, you are them and, and that their, their history is yours. And so the vividness is not the vividness of seeing and hearing, although that's, that can be there to a greater or lesser degree. It's the vividness of feeling like you are that person and having a history 
of being that person. And that's a characteristic of a real past life experience that's different than one that, that uh, your mind is confabulated. You got a hand up? Steve, oh, you can eat. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So I was very interested in what you were saying about the cockroaches <laughs> because uh, I had this thought, I don't know, a year ago or so, I was trying to ponder over this whole thing about Earth. And it occurred to me that parts of the mind, this mind stream, it just, it didn't make sense to me that the whole thing would just move forward as a, as a, as an item, but that it could be dispersed throughout whatever that is, and <clears throat> bits and pieces would end up here and there, and we could parts of my mind stream or what I have could be all over the place. And well, that's one that sounds like what you were saying. But then the Jataka tales, those are very, I have read them, but I've read little pieces, you know, in, in Dharma talk and things I've read. And that looks like there was some kind of linear progression of, a, mm -hmm. of an actual, anyway, what can you say about that? Yeah, I, you know, there have been so many, the, the suttas themselves have been altered very extensively. Um, the Jataka tales, many of them were around long before the Buddha. Um, they, in a, a culture that believed in reincarnation, they were sort of the equivalent of Aesop's fables. They were morality tales. Uh, and they, of course, were uh, added to by Buddhists that believed in reincarnation. And, uh, uh, and the pre-existing stories were modified so that it was when this particular Buddha, uh, so many eons ago, uh, walked the earth, such and such happened, and this is how he responded, and so on, so on, on and so forth. So I, I see this as nothing more than, nothing different than those many parts of the suttas that have been uh, altered and added. A lot of things have been added, a lot of things have been redacted, a lot of things have, have been modified. Sometimes the modification takes the form of just a single word or two, but it totally changes the meaning of, of what it says. And this is the result of studies that compare uh, Sanskrit versions and the Chinese Agamas with the Pali Canon. And, and uh, there are several, the Pali Canon and the Agamas are the most complete collections, but there are a number of different versions of the Sanskrit suttas. So this gives scholars the opportunity to compare and, and try to identify those parts of uh, suttas that have been uh, altered in some way or another. Sometimes there's a total change in voice. Sometimes they recognize it as coming from somewhere else. Sometimes it's just it's it's present one way in, in these versions, but then this version is presented completely differently. So, right. Well, my comment wasn't so much about the Jataka tales as about this other idea of dispersion of, of know, consciousness or awareness. Yeah. <laughs> well, more to say about that? Yeah, I, well, if this is, if this is what, it's, it's not the dispersion of consciousness, it's this dispersion of the uh, 
uh, karmic tendencies that we've developed. Uh, the the details aren't aren't important, but yeah, those tendencies, those predispositions, the knowledge, the understanding, the wisdom, uh, that's that's what continues on. And uh, I I I believe uh, I don't have quite the same degree of certainty about this, but I believe that those predispositions of a person, which are very coherent, which they would be in uh, uh, a, a Buddha or an Arhat or somebody that's on a higher path, that those coherent aspects uh, of a person's knowledge and understanding would be more likely to stay together and for those minds that resonated with it, they could, could be... Uh, incorporated much more readily and so uh, and as a matter of fact that would probably be uh, a good way of explaining what's happening when uh, in the Tibetan tradition when you find a child who's three or four years old and you educate them in a particular way you're putting their mind in a state of resonance a resonance where they're not they're not a reincarnation of a previous Lama or uh, of a, uh, a Bodhisattva or something like that, but it prepares them to assimilate, to assimilate those qualities uh, from, from many previous uh, uh, adepts. Let's call them liberated beings, and uh, in any of us, those pe there are some people for whom insight and awakening comes much more easily than others. So, does that answer your question about the dispersal? Um, no, but I think my question. <clears throat> Not quite right. So, oh, okay. Yeah, it has something to do with trying to figure figure out if if there's been a continuum that is now in this body identified with this personality. If that continuum was in some other body with some other personality as a whole, or if it's yeah. all piecemeal. No, it's no, it's not as a whole. But because uh, of the interconnectedness on the mental level, um, and, and the thing is, it, it's, it's not like it comes into your mind when you're in the womb or comes into your mind when you're born. You're constantly taking in and throwing out aspects that you uh, absorbed earlier in your life. This is how we're reshaping ourselves. We reshape ourselves to become Buddhas by getting rid of some things and assimilating other things. So uh, even this dispersion is not an all-at-once thing, but uh, it is a dispersion. May I ask another question? Uh, if, if that's okay with everybody else. <laughs> I can wait if somebody else has a hand up, of course. Nobody else has a hand up, but they might be, when are we going to get off of this?
What's well, your question? Not, okay. not, well, it's kind of related. Uh, my girlfriend and I were talking about uh, abortion. And yeah. uh, we had heard a, a story about a, a child who had been carried, you know, to term, even though it was known that the child had very, very serious uh, genetic defects. Mm -hmm. and so I was thinking, well, you know, if we're, if we, if we know that that such a thing is going to occur before the child is born, uh, yet we're following the precepts, I guess we wouldn't uh, abort a child. And then we were talking, and I said, I think it probably, we would have to know when the mind enters that body, because before that, maybe an abortion would be not killing a being, but after that, maybe it would. So I don't know if that's an appropriate question, but it's an interesting one, and I'd love to hear about that. Well, uh, at a level of wisdom that is greater than we have socially and culturally now, um, it would depend on what those genetic defects were and what the consequences of, of them were. If, if it was known for certain that uh, that child was going to be born into a very short life of extreme misery and perhaps very limited mental development, it could perhaps uh, be judged to be the most compassionate thing to abort that child. As, as a matter of fact, nature naturally aborts uh, many children of that sort, you know. But on the other hand, if the genetic problem was something like, say, Huntington's chorea, then where would we be without, uh, uh, oh, the name just slipped my mind, the wonderful, uh, songwriter activist of the uh, early early 20th Woody century Guthrie. yeah Woody Guthrie yeah you know he lived a wonderful life before he developed Huntington's and he made a, a gigantic contribution to to world culture and he made a gigantic contribution to uh, the universe as a whole so you know I mean to abort a, a, a fetus because you knew it was going to uh, carry the genes for Huntington's would be ridiculous. That would be, that would be very unwholesome. So you're asking a question that requires a degree of wisdom uh, and would require, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's just one of those theoretical questions that maybe gives us the opportunity to, to think about things from the point of view of, of uh, what actually compassion means. Uh, uh, you're talking about uh, Jataka tales. There's one Jataka tale where uh, uh, a past Buddha is on a ship and uh, a pirate or pirates had taken it over and they were planning to kill everybody aboard, which was, you know, a few hundred people. And the Buddha took it upon himself. He had the opportunity. To, to kill the person who was going to do this. And the Jataka tale tells us that he did this for the sake of the person he killed to spare him the karma of having committed all those murders. But he also saved the lives of everybody else on, on the boat. So 
there are those kind of moral conundrums. Um, and I think you you wrote about that when when discussing uh, precepts. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know anything about uh, when consciousness enters fetus? Is, do we know anything about that? Not really. Not really. As a matter of fact, most of the human brain takes place, uh, or well, about about half of brain development. The basic structures are all laid down, and there's a huge number of excess neurons uh, prior to a baby being born. But between birth and about five years old is where the brain continues to be developed. Um, there is some suggestion that uh, that fetuses, or not fetuses, but infants, very young infants, aren't conscious in the sense, but there's no way we can know any more than we can know whether an earthworm is conscious or not. We can speculate, we can say what seems likely or not, but that's all. Okay, Let's go on to another question. <laughs> okay. Toby, Toby here? Yes, no. Yes? Yes, I'm here. Oh, great, great. Uh, glad I get to address a question from somebody who's here. <laughs> okay. You say, I'm currently at stage five, sometimes stage six. This summer I will go on my first retreat. As far as I understand it, is that, uh, that it's possible to gain a lot of moment, momentum during retreat so you can practice on higher stages than in your usual day, -day practice. Uh, my goal for this retreat is to achieve jhanas and take them back to my day-to-day -day practice. So my question is, what would be the most effective way to achieve this? Going as deep as I can, maybe practicing stage eight or so, or should I concentrate on perfecting my skills and say entering the whole body jhanas? Um, okay, if you're, if you're sometimes at stage six, hopefully in your retreat you will um, uh, be able to do stage six practice effectively. And by all means, part of that is part of getting to stage eight is practicing the uh, uh, whole body jhanas to get to stage seven. Likewise, if during your retreat you find that you're, uh, you reach a point where you can practice the uh, uh, do stage seven practices and then practice the, the pleasure jhanas. Now, to go from where you are to trying to practice the luminous jhanas that are described in stage eight, I think you would find yourself in the situation of people that are following a pa'ak system. That, uh, and actually, this kind of contradicts something that uh, I believe uh, Shayla Catherine has said, but uh, it's, what's consistent with my experience is that uh, if, if you tried to jump to stage eight practice, you'd be like somebody doing a retreat uh, with Pa Hawk, and there's only a very, very small percentage of the people that do that who actually are able to achieve that luminous jhana, which is um, uh, the, one of the objectives of, of that practice. So I would strongly suggest that uh, you should you should practice jhanas so that you can carry them into your daily life, but you practice them according to the stage that you're at. Uh, and don't make it, make it difficult on yourself and 
I won't say waste your time because even the uh, even the attempt has uh, a value in it, but um, you're reducing your likelihood of success by jumping ahead. So, uh, how do you feel about that as an answer? Yes, this helped. This helped a lot. Thank you. Good. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Okay. Um, Peter. Peter here? Yep, I'm here. Yeah, great. Okay. For the sake of curiosity and inspiration, what is beyond fourth path? I read few mentions that particularly, uh, I read few mentions that particularly in Mahayana, they don't see Arhat and fourth as the ultimate thing. And I think you also mentioned there is path beyond. Can you uh, please be specific and try to put into words what experiences are beyond fourth path? What are things you're investigating and discovering today? And finally, is it possible to extrapolate and tell where it leads? Do you have a sense what is beyond what is visible to your experience now? Um, so first of all, yes, absolutely. The fourth path is, is not the end. And um, the one thing that I can see forth, uh, that I can foresee most clearly is that uh, I don't think there is an end. The uh, closest thing to an end would be as if a person um, achieved fourth path early enough and lived several hundred years, uh, they might reach the point where uh, they, had, they hadn't exhausted the uh, uh, qualities that could be developed and, and the wisdom that could be acquired, but um, they would have exhausted uh, perhaps, and this is just <laughs> uh, perhaps exhausted how much more uh, their human brain and human mind could uh, uh, could actually assimilate and and attain to, but um, there are it's a lot of the things spoken of in the Mahayana are making uh, some direct but mostly oblique references to what is beyond fourth path. Um, the realization of Rigpa, uh, and I know there are, I, I use that word and all kinds of people have different definitions of it. And some of those definitions are really a trivialization of what Rigpa, Rigpa refers to. But the realization of, of Rigpa is one of those things. Uh, going beyond time, that's another one of those things. Uh, most of the things, I, I think the reason the Buddha didn't mention it, and I think he was very wise not to, is that these are things that uh, a person has to experience for themselves, and it would only be confusing and lead to a whole lot more intellectual conjecture and, and uh, uh, fabrication and things like that were they spoken of. But there are references in uh, mystical traditions to, to these things. They're not completely absent. Um, 
and recall uh, the Buddha refer made a reference to uh, the dirt under his fingernails compared to the entire earth as being you know I, what I've taught you is is uh, compared to what I've experienced is like the dirt under my fingernails compared to the whole earth um, he was saying that there's a whole lot more but that I, I think it was clear to him that uh, what he was teaching was was what was appropriate to to people until they had achieved those higher paths who knows what he may have said in private to uh, those many people who became arhats during his time but uh, it's it's not it's not in the suttas and quite frankly even fourth path itself is until you've experienced it, um, you can't really understand it. Um, there's attempts to attempts made to describe it, but uh, they always uh, end up being conceptualizations, and the conceptualizations are based on what a person is already familiar with, what a person has already had experience with to some degree or another. So. It's not really productive to talk about it much more than to say, in my experience, every time I thought I, I understood, hmm, yes, that it's like a whole new door would open to, you know, something that I never dreamed would, was there before. And I've had that experience more than once. So it's by no means the end of the path. And the kinds of insights you have are new insights. The first four paths are based on the five insights that I enumerated uh, in the introduction to my book. But um, uh, that's not the end of insight either. I'm, I'm sorry if that's not as satisfactory as you would have liked, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's satisfactory enough that I'm not going to ask again. <laughs> All right. So, um, okay. I think I'm going to manage one more question here and then we'll have to wind this up. Um, got, no. Lots of questions left here. Okay. The next one's uh, David, David Carpenter. Um, I believe I have heard you say that you believe the attention given to the default mode network in recent discussions of the neuroscience of meditation is a bit overblown. I think you said something about it being culture specific, but uh, I may not be remembering accurately. Could you say more about this? Uh, yes, it is being overblown and misinterpreted. And the reason that the default mode net network functions the way it did is that, um, uh, or functions the way it does, sorry, <laughs> the way it does in, in almost everybody is that uh, there is a uh, culturally 
uh, imprinted uh, worldview that um, causes the brain to become wired in such a way that it is the dominant worldview. And uh, this happens uh, th this happens as a result of uh, a change that took place in Homo sapiens, and it was a cultural change, not a genetic change, not an evolutionary change. Uh, and a change in the way they used their minds, which allowed them to uh, act cooperatively in large groups and lar on large scale, and uh, also uh, much more greatly developed the parts of their brain which uh, operate uh, uh, by uh, that operate reductionistically and analytically and synthetically and that's that's where our cell phones and, and hydrogen bombs come from is is that that's also where our belief that the only reason somebody does would do something that appears to be altruistic is uh, out of enlightened self-interest and so on and so forth um, remember, I said earlier that the brain is only about half formed at birth, and some of the most important uh, structural wiring that takes place uh, in the brain is in the first five years of life, and that's being done under the influence of the caregivers that uh, the child grows up with, and the assimilation of the worldview, so that their brain becomes wired in such a way that um, uh, the mental processes that underlie attention come to be dominate, dominant, strongly dominant, and uh, even to inhibit the uh, information processing, the information processing uh, that uh, gives rise to the phenomenon of uh, awareness, particularly metacognitive awareness. And in a sort of generalized sense, we could say that it was a cultural shift that caused the left hemisphere to become dominant over the right hemisphere. And the left hemisphere, where there's the language center, the left hemisphere, the parts of the left hemisphere that process information reductionistically and analytically and symbolically and cause this constant inner chatter to be taking place in, in the minds of, uh, of ordinary people. The, this is because that when a person is not performing a task, this overdeveloped aspect of the brain uh, is doing something that it has been conditioned to do, which is to linearly and cyclically keep processing information. Now, now every now and then that produces something good, you know, uh, some, sometimes a, a new way of seeing things or understanding things will arise out of this uh, involuntary inner cogitation. But it's not the fault of the default mode network that this happens. It's the way the default network is uh, dominated by certain parts of the brain, uh, particularly that are left hemispheric oriented. And that's why when uh, uh, when the brain begins to 
function differently in a way that's more consistent with uh, metacognitive awareness and, and awakening, that there is uh, what uh, uh, Jeffrey Martin describes as uh, non-symbolic experiencing. Because, because when you're not engaged in a task, which, which that part of the brain is really good at uh, linear tasks, when you're not engaged in a linear task, it just is running on idle in a very noisy way instead of shutting down and waiting until it's called upon to be turned on again. Does that help to explain it? I'm still trying to get a clear idea of, of your criticism of it. I mean, I've come across it in literature on the neuroscience of meditation fairly frequently. Yes. And it right. seems to correlate with the narrating self. Mm -hmm. uh, is the main point you're making that it's not, that in other words, the default mode network is a neurological network that is just there, neurologically hardwired. Yes. And then it can be used, it can function in different ways. And historically, um, I think probably pretty close to universally now, it functions mm -hmm. as a way of supporting the narrating self. Um, but that it doesn't have, so for another, in other words, in an arhat, it would not function that way, but it would still function. That's right, yes. An arhat still has a default mode network. Mm -hmm. It's there, but it's just functioning differently. So. But then would you agree that it could still be a useful um, way of thinking about uh, sort of the neurological ramifications or correlates of of the narrating self it would be it would be um, I think it would be very it, it is very useful to think of it in terms of the default why what is making the default mode network function this way and why does it function in a different way in people who have done certain trainings and to approach the problem that way as like what's responsible for it behaving this way what's the difference when it behaves this other way then we would really learn something more uh, that's of importance about how the brain works mm. um, I mean implying that the way the default mode network tends to operate in most of us is somehow natural. Yeah, it's as opposed it's, to conditioning. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a capacity that we have, and it's very important. But it's just that uh, our minds are out of balance, and so it when we're when it's not engaged in it, when there's no task engagement, and you go into the default mode. The, the default mode is doing something that is really not useful. That's in a, in a sense malfunctioning or dysfunctional. Mm. Dysfunctional in that it, it, it fills the mind with crap. All right, yeah, that, I think I understand what you're, what you're saying now in terms of the criticism. Yeah, it's just the people that talk about it as the default mode network is the um, is is villainous, and uh, you know we'd be better off without one or something. Well, it's it's there for a reason, but uh, it's also functioning the way it does for a reason, and that's not something that it that has to be the case. Obviously, since it does stop with certain kinds of training. Okay, thank you. You're welcome.
Well, I enjoyed this and uh, good to see you all. And thank you very, very much for your support. It is starting to pay off and hopefully I'll clutter your bookshelves up in, in the future as a result of it. And in the meantime, I look forward to our next uh, gathering, which will be, um, what was the date of that? The 25th, is it, I, I believe. Anyway, it's, it's going to be kind of a, a catch-up, and uh, we have, have a lot of questions accumulating. <laughs> so until then, thank you.